Welcome to the Sega Lounge, where we celebrate our love for all things Sega, including the games, the music, and the community. I'm your host, KC. Join me as I talk to different guests and learn more about their projects and passion for Sega. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sega Lounge. It's great to be back. If you don't know me, my name is David. I'm better known online as KC and I'm the host of this show and have been for the past almost 10 years. It's amazing. This is our season 8 premiere and also the premiere of our 10th anniversary season. Wow, I'm getting old, but this show is still going and I'm proud of it. Welcome, everyone. I hope you've been doing well. I haven't spoken to you in a while, since December, at least through this show. But it's time to look back at the past season of the Sega Lounge. This is how we usually start our seasons. We look back at the great episodes we had last year, and this year is no exception. A few brief comments before we start a few ground rules that I have established for myself. So this year we have a limited number of highlights. This year I imposed a limit to myself of only 10 highlights and I cannot talk about, I mean, just briefly, but I cannot talk about at length and highlight returning guests to the show. So these will be 10 highlights of only new guests, new people who came on the show for the first time in season eight. Seven. Also, only interviews are allowed. There were a lot of popular episodes that were either roundtables or the anniversary special as well, our ninth anniversary special, but I'm only highlighting 10 interview moments from season seven. I hope this is a good way to start the new season. I hope it's a good way for new people listening in and founding out about the show to just get a feel of what we do around here. We're all about Sega. We're all about the Sega community, the people behind Sega games, Sega music, and the wonderful projects that the community comes up with. So let's get started with this first batch of highlights. Legendary developer John Hare was the second guest of Season 7 and provided us with a very candid and experienced look on the evolution and current state of the video games industry. As a veteran of the industry and one of the minds behind iconic titles like Sensible Soccer and Cannon Fodder, he was very direct in sharing his feelings about the current way the industry works. He also revealed an interesting story behind Sega's World Championship Soccer 2 game, which had its development credited to the mystery chefs. Sensible software were the mystery chefs. <laughs> yes. We, yes, yes, exactly. Why, why the mystery, well, uh, both in the name and the process <laughs> of <laughs> development? We were, we were working with the, some of the guys from Sega, and they wanted a football game. Um, mm. uh, we managed to be able to repurpose this, the Sensible Soccer engine to make it mm. look like a different game. Um, okay. But it plays like Sensible Soccer from a from from a side on angle rather than an overhead angle with bigger characters. Mm. Uh, and we didn't want to uh, in any way confuse our public with Sensible Soccer, which was like doing really well at the time. Um, and yeah, it's one of those things where in those days, you know, Sensible, we had lots of hit games that we didn't really make good money until Sensible Soccer came out in 92. Mm. And we were f kind of flavor of the month. And so we really cashed in by signing every contract we could, could around 92, 93, 94, 95, when we finally were like a 
everyone wanted a bit of us and we were very happy to take their money after doing seven years of apprenticeship of having hits and never really making we had okay money to survive but nothing really great mm-hmm. um and that was one of the things you know it was a it was quite a fun thing to do actually yeah I really enjoyed getting to know Pete Gibbons a bit more. Not only did he share with me some of his favorite memories of growing up as a Sega fan, but explained why he decided to write his book, My Life with Sega, which is, by the way, still available to purchase. Because obviously the story is about me finding these games and kind of what was happening, how these games affected me, what my life was doing. And I wanted people to be able to relate to that if they could. It didn't matter if they didn't. They could still read about the games and think, oh, I loved that game. But I've had so many people say, oh, I, I remember feeling that way when I found that game. I remember feeling that way when uh, I was going to get my new console. And that's what I love. That's kind of what I wanted for mm-hmm. people just to think, oh, I remember feeling that good as a child. Because being excited as a child is the, ma- the best thing. You, you, <laughs> miss, you miss that feeling as you get older. But just the idea that you're going to get a new a new game for your birthday, it was just the most exciting thing. So yeah, that's I've had people relate to all those feelings and it's been really nice for them to say that kind of thing. The main goal was to prove to myself that I could do it, I think. Um, it was just something I wanted to do. And if people kind of gravitated towards it and appreciated it, that was just an amazing added bonus. Um, and because I have, I'll call them talents, I don't know if anybody will agree, but I can write all right. I can I can draw and illustrate okay. I can design pages all right. I just thought a book is kind of just bringing all of that together, um, just mm-hmm. writing and illustrating and laying out pages and stuff. And that's just really what I wanted to do. I just wanted a project that I could work on that I was passionate about. And I would hopefully find like-minded people who would also find passion in it too. And just, as I say before, relate relate to the stories inside. And that was just the main goal, really. And if it sold, amazing. Yeah, there's so many happy memories from playing video games. And I don't know, back when I was a child, it was almost taboo to talk about games. When I was at school, yeah. um, I was always kind of championing them and I was always talking about them, but it was always quite hushed. Like my friends, they were gamers occasionally, but they didn't want to talk about it. It was almost embarrassing. Um, but now, you know, everybody talks about it. It's this huge industry and everybody's proud to be a gamer. And so, yeah, it was nice. It's nice how it's developed and it's nice how I found people of that ilk when I was a child, even though they, they didn't really want to talk about it back then. So yeah, it's, uh, there's just, yeah, a lot of my life is connected to games I was playing at the time and that's what I wanted to write about. Sonic Triple Trouble 16-Bit is a great fan project which does exactly what you think it does. It answers the question, what would Sonic Triple Trouble be like if it had been released on the Mega Drive? Noah N. Copeland, lead developer behind the project, explained that he made an intentional use of the limitations of the original hardware to create a very authentic experience. Because if you don't know, a Sega Genesis can only show so many colors on screen at one time. It's about mm-hmm. 60, 60 or 61, depending on if uh, where the background is. And so we wanted that look uh, for our game. We wanted it to feel like a game from the 90s. We wanted it to feel authentic. So there were, it felt bad, but there were times when the artist would make this beautiful art. I'm like, it looks great. There's too many but. colors. We need to make it worse <laughs> yeah. in order to make it better to make it more authentic because we don't i don't want it i don't want it to lose the feel right i was sort of mm-hmm. um dave Grohl from the foo fighters 
uh, he did an they did an album maybe uh, a while back where instead of doing it digitally with computers like all albums are done, they got like an old analog tape machine and recorded it to physical tape the way you did back in the day. And the producer was like, "Okay, that's cool, but." you know, we should back it up on computers just in case we lose something. And he's like, no, I don't want to see a computer on this, in this studio. If we, if the tape fails, we have to re-record it. Like that's how we do it. So it, we sort of did a similar thing with that level of auth- authenticity. It's like, if the mm-hmm. Genesis couldn't do it, if the Mega Drive couldn't do it, we won't do it either. We kept the colors down to the limit. The kind of effects we could use uh, we're limited. Uh, you know, Super Nintendo had the Mode 7 scaling stuff that it used for like F-Zero. Genesis mm-hmm. didn't have that at a hardware level. It had to be done with software. So a lot of times when it happened, there was a little hitch in the frame rate. Um, so anytime we do any sort of scaling in our game, I made the game purposely hitch the frame rate for just a second <laughs> uh, just to get that level <laughs> in there. I might be the only game developer in history to intentionally lower the frame rate artificially. Okay. Because yeah. <laughs> as a game developer, you're constantly fighting to get the frame rate as high as possible. Obviously, but, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was, I was going to ask that. So how uh, it, did that work or did you do that for everything like music and everything? Or did some things, did you take advantage of, of the, you know, uh, a, m- a more powerful system or, you know, systems yeah. that we now use today? It was pretty much like that through everything. The music like yeah. that, for sure. Um, okay. No more than uh, six tracks of FM synthesis, usually five with a six one for low-quality audio samples and a little pulse sound generator, which is how the Mega Drive did it. Um, in fact, a lot of the music um, that was done on it, um, like some, I did have some guest musicians. Normally for a stage, I would do act one and then have someone else do act two, so we got two different interpretations of the same song. Yeah. A lot of the guest musicians used a program called Defle Mask, which means that the music they made can not only follow Sega Genesis limitations, but it can literally be literally be played on played. a mm-hmm. uh, Mega Drive if they burned it to like a flashcard or something. It could literally be played on it, so you can't get more uh, more authentic than literally being on the hardware. Right. The only sure. thing I think we sort of cheated on really was um, maybe the amount of content. I think it would be hard to fit all of that into a, you know, four megabyte cartridge. Though to be fair, some games like I think Street Fighter had larger cartridge sizes. They were just more expensive to make at the time, so they were rare. But it was yeah. possible. Um, that's the only thing, because you know we have a, we have what one, two, three, four, five unlockable characters. Mm-hmm. Um, all the different stages the final unlockable stage, but also a competition mode that has battle, race, balloon, and its own separate campaign with a lot of text in it with a lot of dialogue. So I think that's might be the only thing where we sort of cheated was just the amount of stuff we sort of crammed okay. in there. Last season, I had the privilege of chatting to another one of the Sega masters from the Australian Sega hotline. Currently a content creator, Sin Spacey's told me how he caught his break with Sega through his fanzine. Around 1990, I was creating a fanzine called um, The Sega Times. And a fanzine is basically a fan-made magazine, hence the name fanzine. And it was just a really rough uh, magazine that I would put out once a month. I tried to do it once a month. And uh, it was just of articles that I 
would grab from all the magazines I was buying and I would compile them together and also do my reviews. It was just basically a magazine that I'd put out mm-hmm. all by myself. I'd do the illustrations or the articles. I'd put it all together. It was a very, very uh, labor-intensive thing that I would do, but it was also something that uh, was a great learning experience. Um, and so I would send those magazines off to Sega because I would be ringing up uh, the Sega hotline that we had here on a regular basis and speaking, I'd end up getting transferred to the marketing manager here in, in uh, uh, Sega Aussiesoft. Well, Aussiesoft, it was just, just called back then. They were the distributors of Sega machines uh, here. Mm-hmm. And I ended up on a weekly basis talking to the marketing manager and asking him about what new games are coming out and what's happening in the, in the console industry and, uh, and I'll be trying for months to get a job there. Okay. I wanted to leave school. I, I didn't want to. I, I was in year 11 at the time. And I didn't want to go through to year 12. I had no mm-hmm. interest. I was bored at high school. I had, there was um, l- really nothing for me there. It was my main energy and focus was on video, video gaming. Um, but I would eventually go through to year 12. And I, I left and it was only about a month I was out of work, I guess you could call it, which I guess most people go through when they first leave high school. Um, and my dad came in one day and he says, I think you need to go out and get yourself a job now. I think it's time. And I was like, yeah, okay, I know. <laughs> by, and by this stage, I had been spending months applying, trying to get uh, some something at Sega. Mm. And I was giving up at this stage. But the phone rings and it's a new manager. I've never heard this voice before. And she says, so you're the one that's been sending in these magazines. I said, well, yes, that's I'm the, the Sega Times. That's me. She goes, okay, I need you to come in. Uh, if you're interested in working here, I need you to come in and we want to meet up and have a chat. And all they asked me was, have you played Alex Kidd in Miracle World? I said, yeah, I finished it. She goes, great. Yeah, and, and she goes, can you read and write? I said, yes. <laughs> You're hired. <laughs> that, that, that was the interview. <laughs> but the fact that I could um, uh, prove and show and demonstrate that I finished Alex Kidd in Miracle World uh, was enough to get me across the line because everyone that phoned had that game in built into their system at yeah. that stage. Without getting into too much detail, there's this final stage mm-hmm. and there's these um, there's these icons on the ground and you need to run over them in a certain order. Otherwise, a ghost comes out and in you die. Dead. There's yeah. no getting yeah. There's no getting out of it. So, figuring out the combination, you've only got a certain amount of lives. Mm-hmm. You can only continue so many times in that game. Um, so. We we played it. We had no. We didn't call the Sega hotline. That was another thing. I I figured this all out just with me and a a friend down the road, and we were trying to figure it out. And I suddenly remembered seeing something somewhere that the Japanese don't read the same way we do. They read from right to left and up from top to bottom. So I grabbed that pull screen and I wrote down all the icons and we decided let's try it that way. And that was what got us across the line. So it was like a big, big brain moment, I thought, anyway. (laughs) Elliot Kidner was another great guest from last season. 
The head of video at Sega Europe shared his love for the company, his job, and his experiences in the past 15 years, including a really heartwarming story involving his son. And he is such a nice guy, too. I personally, and I get that other people have different experiences working wherever you are. No one's going to enjoy it in the same way you do. I'm, I've... I worked in the docks driving cars off of a off of a boat, which was good at the time. But you know, there was people there that were that were sixty and kept saying to me, you know, because I'd come straight out of university. You've got a brain. Make sure you 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 use your what they said talent. They again I refer to the kingdom of the blind back then when I was the one eyed man because none of them were. Were, had gone to university so they were saying go and do things and they were right but so i've always appreciated every job i've been in since because i did work in what was a very hard job very manually you know tiring so i remember the again again i only i like i said earlier i only wanted to be at sega for, for a couple of months i'd set the set the video team up and then i was freelancing i'll go and do other tv work i was i just started working on the, a sport channel doing highlight packages. I was really enjoying that. And I thought, well, once the Sega thing finishes, I'll go back and do that. But from almost from day one, something interesting would come in. Like I was saying early on, we were just changing names and things like that, but it was really exciting working out how to do that. Like, you know, it was finding ways that we could, cause not everyone gave us like an after effects project and here I'll go and, 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 this is how we made the the sub the things you can now do it we'd have to find ways to make it look like it often and things like that so that was good but i think i remember yeah my children being i I was at a school gate picking up my kids and two kids came up to me and said is it true you work with sonic the hedgehog and i Oh, honestly, and I did, it really hit me for six. Like I didn't think of it like that, but to them, it was the coolest job. And then they asked me a thousand questions, you know, like, oh, where does he sleep? Where, you know, where, where, when uh, does he stay there? Does, does he ever come to your house? And it was, it was so lovely. And, and that I suddenly thought, you know what? I'm not going to get that in, in, you know, I'm sure there are other jobs, but for me in any other job, because he was so iconic and to me that yeah that that moment then was like do you know what i love this company it was so random that it would be that because i've done like going to my first e3 with with um sega was brilliant gamescom doing things like that i get i got to i've i've been so fortunate i've traveled all over the world with sega i've been really lucky as a cameraman you know we get sent to all our devs i've been to every studio we've got i've been to tokyo many times i've been to la lots of times but it really was that one moment those kids coming up and going and then asking me a thousand questions and i could see my 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 boy being so excited that you know i told you he knew sonic you know it was it was really lovely and yeah and it and I think, yeah, again, silly, a little silly thing, but that really was. That was a tempo that was like, do you know what, actually, this isn't a bad company. And, and, I, and again, I'd like to say that about Sega is uh, I've never known a company. And again, this, is, this sounds crass because I feel bad because they do, we have laid people off in the past. And, you know, that does happen and that's natural 
but they really do look after the staff. And I think, and even the people that, you know, unfortunately when projects change and, and, you know, the needs of having different people shrunk or expand, they always look after people when they, when they, um, you know, finish their contracts. It's all, you know, it's a, it is a brilliant company to work for. I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky. Sorry, I, should, I keep going on about how good it is. I'm sounding one of them idiots that I hate. When I go, oh, I love working for Disney. Disney's the best. That's what it sounds like. But but that is, again, it, it's it, that's what it's like. One thing that I also like to do throughout the season at some points is to look at the stats and analytics that are provided by our podcast host. And it's very nice to see every year the different countries where people are listening to and uh, the people that are engaging with the show in one way or another. For example, let me share with you the top 10 countries in terms of listeners of the Sega Lounge. So at number 10, we have the Netherlands with 2.08%. With 2.11% at 9th place, we have Saudi Arabia. Interesting. At number 8, we have Canada with 2.73% of our current pool of listeners. Up one spot, number 7, France with 3.09%. Bonjour. Number 6, Germany, 3.98%. Number 5, Japan, which is quite surprising, 4.38%. I think we first had Japanese listeners this season, this last season, and it kind of amazes me that people from Japan are listening to this show. Number four, Portugal. Hola, 5.59% of our listeners. And now we get into the top three. Number three, Australia, 9.39%. Number two, the UK, 23.32%, and as per usual, number one, the US, 34.74%. This was only throughout season seven, so this is not like a whole picture of all seasons, or at least ever since I get stats and analytics to look at, but this is only from uh, the last year of shows. This was the current picture, the current map of listeners of the Sega Lounge. Other honorable mentions. So the other countries have, you know, a a smaller number of listeners, but I do appreciate all of you. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to the Sega Lounge either regularly or occasionally. It doesn't matter. I really love you all. But some countries that I was looking at and I thought were interesting that were on the list were Venezuela, Ghana, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Belarus, and Gibraltar. Nice. Nice. Thank you very much to everyone from these countries and all the other countries in the world that currently listen to the Sega Lounge. I hope you stick around. And if you're new around here, please do stick around and uh, let us know that you're listening as well. Do use our socials. We have uh, accounts on all the social media networks. We have the X Twitter and Instagrams and all that jazz. We have uh, Blue Sky currently at thesegalounge.com. We have Mastodon. We're everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, I'm not really great at social media stuff, but I, I'm, I'm around. I'm around. Hit me up with a DM or something and let me know you're listening to the show. And a very nice way to tell me that you're listening to the show is to actually use our voicemail function on our website. So our website is, of course, thesegalounge.com. 
And if you go to our main web page, actually everywhere on our website, on every page, there's always a little tab on the right, uh, which you can use to send a voicemail. It says send a voicemail. If you click on that tab, you can record right there and then on the website itself, a short message for me to listen to. And you can do that to let me know that you're listening to the show. If you have any kind of comments or suggestions about the show, any kind of guests you'd like to see coming to the lounge in the future is there a particular fan project you want me to cover are you working on a fan game or an actual game for one of sega's consoles or a spiritual successor to a classic game or a game that is inspired by one of sega's ips let me know and maybe we can get together and talk for a little bit you can come on the sega lounge in the future in season eight who knows so that's it. Go to thesegalaunch.com, click the send a voicemail tab and, you know, hit me up with a message. I'd love to hear from you. Also, you can uh, take that opportunity while you're on thesegalaunch.com to subscribe to our newsletter. I promise to be better at sending newsletters and reminding people of new shows that are out and other events we are taking part in. So do check it out. Subscribe to the email newsletter on thesegalaunch.com. The Sega Lounge is once again supporting Game Blast this year as part of Team Radio Sega on the weekend of February 23rd to the 25th. Game Blast is a huge annual event in which the gaming community comes together to raise money and awareness to the work being done by Special Effect. Special Effect is an amazing charity that helps people with disabilities to enjoy video games by adapting technology to their needs. Things like modified controllers and eye-tracking sensors are just a couple of examples of ways that Special Effect has been helping to level the playing field and helping people with disabilities have fun and feel included and able. It's not just about the games, but above all a way of helping people regain their confidence, allowing kids to play with their family and friends, and overall improving people's quality of life. I've done some streaming in the past to support the event, but on my personal Twitch channel. Now that we have uh, the Sega Lounge Twitch channel over at twitch.tv slash the Sega Lounge, I'll be using that this year to live stream some games and try to get people to donate to special effect by way of interesting incentives that donors can take advantage of to basically you know, make me suffer. We'll also be live streaming to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at the Sega Lounge. So come join us if you can, but even if you can't, please consider donating to the Team Radio Sega Game Blast 24 campaign by heading to thesegalounge.com slash gameblast. It's for a great cause, and we have a lot of great streamers and radio show hosts doing entertaining content all weekend long and beyond. TheSegaLounge.com slash GameBlast supports special effect and help make a difference in someone's life. So remember those ground rules that I mentioned at the beginning of the show? 
Yeah, let's let's throw them out of the window for a little bit and mention the rest of the season of the show before we get back to the second batch of highlights. So I'd like to mention our monthly live episodes, which we started doing at some point with my good friends Lime Reversed and Skill Gym, my partners in crime for the past few months of uh, the Sega Lounge uh, Season 7. I'd also like to mention our 200th episode special. It was a special Sega Lounge challenge. I'd also like to mention friends Dan the Mega Driver, Sam Procrastinates, Viper, Matt Oliver, Brian Vines, Lewis Clark, Bika Chan, who joined us for special episodes focused on specific games, specific events in the community, and those were very fun uh, episodes as well. By the way, one of the most, or actually the most listened to episode of the season was one of our live episodes. That goes to show how popular our live episodes were, even if people were not listening to them live, but they were actually downloading or streaming them uh, afterwards and enjoying them very much. I enjoy them as well. Quick mention to returning guests. I said I wouldn't highlight, you know, uh, returning guests, but, you know, that's just a quick mention. Our good friend Andrew Dickinson came back to the show. He's now the big shot editor-in-chief of Debug Magazine. You should check it out for sure. Scotty Moe also came back to talk about his Dreamcast Marathon. York Tittle returned uh, not as a former journalist, but as one of the minds behind C-Smash VRS. And Adam Cipione, who finally released his Shenmue documentary, came back to talk about that. So those were also very fun episodes to record. All in all, it was an awesome season of the show. I am really proud of what uh, episodes we, we put out last year. So if you haven't listened to any of these episodes that we just mentioned or any of the ones that I'm going to highlight next, please go to thesegalounge.com or search for The Sega Lounge on your podcast provider. They're all, you know, very nicely ordered by number of episode. On thesegalounge.com, you can obviously uh, use the search function on our website. You can use the categories as well to find other related episodes. You can search by guests. So you have uh, various ways of finding the episodes that you have missed. These are just some of the highlights, but maybe you have other episodes that you would like to highlight or you'd like to listen to or to listen back to if you enjoyed them very much. They're all available for your listening pleasure and also on terraplayer.com we're part of terraplayer.com big shout out to that wonderful service and an ever-growing library of podcasts and radios that you can listen to right there and then terraplayer.com let's kick off the second half of our season seven highlights by giving a shout out to another video game legend who came by the lounge stefano arnhold founder and former chairman of tech toy Tectoy was basically synonymous with Sega in Brazil, and perhaps still is. Stefano shared several interesting stories, but perhaps one of the best was how he got Brazilian Formula One legend Ayrton Senna to be the cover of Super Monaco GP2, and how the F1 racer influenced the game. It was interesting because you have to imagine that uh, Sega stopped 88 bits and we continued. Okay. Sega stopped 16 bits and we continued. So... <laughs> We had to reinvent uh, 8 and 16-bit uh, with new games uh, because they were not 
being produced anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So we were here, let's say, trying to find every opportunity uh, in order to strengthen the lineup of new 8-bit, 16-bit game gear, which was quite related to Master System Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. so on, right? And of course, in Brazil, uh, uh, Ayrton Senna was really extremely famous, right? And many times we were proposing things to to Sega in Japan, and they did not really understand why we wanted to do it, but they had big confidence in us and say, ah, if you say it's good, go and do it, right? Okay. But when we came and we said, look, there is this opportunity for us to develop a, a, a Ayrton Senna game, immediately they knew who was Ayrton Senna because he was driving McLaren powered by Honda. Oh. Uh, and was and by coincidence, Irimajiri San, which was the vice president of technology who came to Sega, he came mm-hmm. from Honda. Oh, okay. And he and he was a huge vice president there. And all the the competition uh, including Formula One was in his uh, vice presidency, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so it was the first time that we brought an idea, and they immediately said yes, right? <laughs> and then uh, Ayrton Senna, you know, he was a, a perfectionist, right? In everything he did. So when we started the development, with uh, he wanted to know the details, and uh, we had meetings with the uh, with the development team at that time there was no zoom so those meetings had to be face to face right exactly. in Japan, not, <laughs> not not so easy right <laughs> and and uh, for instance he said i don't like the zebra because when you you pass with the car on the zebra in the video game you lose points you damage the car that's not true because we and when we race, we, we, we use the, 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 the zebra as a support for our turns. Okay. Not too much, because then we damage, right? And the Japanese said, yeah, but we cannot change it. And he said, well, you need to change it, because what you're doing is not correct, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he fought until the Japanese said, okay, okay, you, will, you want, we are going to change everything. And until certain use of the zebra, nothing will happen, and you know. So he was really, uh, and this was excellent, right? For instance, the, the Mega Drive at that time was starting to have synthesized voice. Uh-huh. And, and this was new. So they wanted one phrase from him in, with synthesized voice, right, to be recorded from each of the Grand Prix from next year, right, to launch. And Barcelona was new, right? And so they said, no, but you, you, he said, no, I never drove in Barcelona. I, I, no, no, you make, make a, something neutral. And he said, no way, <laughs> right? I'm not going to give you an opinion about a circuit which I don't know, right? And then he said, but I, I promised the following six hours after the end of the Grand Prix. I can give you a recording. If you send a crew, I can, it can't be before because uh, if I win, I have to go to the interview. I have to go, I don't know what. There is a, a sequence, right? 
But I promise you, six hours after the end of the, the if you send the crew, and it did, we sent the crew there, right, uh, to to get this tape, right, and uh, and he did it. So okay. you know, it was, but it it couldn't be done before because it didn't know the the circuit yet. That's amazing. That's amazing. So we had and, to and they went the a little bit, uh, you know, like some yeah. days it was, and they went just, with it. It shows the, 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 the power of persuasion of Ayrton Senna and, and his influence, right? <laughs> right, yeah. It was, was really, it was really nice. It was a, a very, very nice project. It's easy to assume you know the reasons that lead people to work on a certain fan project. But sometimes the feelings and motivation behind a passion project or a hobby are deeper than we can imagine. Take Kay Martinez, author of the documentary Masterpieces, Jet Set Radio Future. In a way, seems like his whole life story and experiences were poured into this project. I kind of have a complicated relationship with Jet Serity Future. Um, this will be very brief, but a little personal. Uh, the game was a bit of a safe haven for me as a kid uh, because it kind of became an escape from a lot of traumatic things that were happening in my home at the time. And... So I developed a very bittersweet relationship with it. It, uh, I, I had a love for it that was very intricate, um, but it was more so just the fact that it really encouraged creativity, self-expression, be who you are, and to use your voice however you see fit. And on the other hand, it also became a vivid reminder of that time period of my life so mm -hmm. as i got older and i grew away from uh the original xbox and that game um i just kind of didn't subconsciously didn't want to think about it anymore just because it reminded me too much of that time period and come 2020 uh i built my own gaming pc uh for gaming and video editing and uh wanted to make sure it could handle whatever i threw at it And I ended up discovering the CXBX Xbox emulator and saw what people were doing with Jet Set Radio Future on there. And if people aren't familiar with an emulator, uh, basically is a software on a PC that allows you to repl replicate or emulate a um, video game console and you can kind of experience the games in their raw state, um, which also allows you to upscale the game And so seeing the game in a whole new light and now in my own safe space that I've created for myself, um, it's, I don't know, it was just kind of life-changing because I was now seeing this game that I had only previously experienced in that tainted controlled environment, um, but also only experienced on like a tube TV on the original yeah. <laughs> Xbox with the, the limitations of that hardware and now revisiting it on uh, PC in 4k running at like 144 Hertz. It was just mind blowing it. The, the colors, the graphics, the attention to detail and the textures and the, the art style. There were so many details that I had never noticed before. And so seeing that I went online and I wanted to look up if 
there were any form of uh, videos in like documentary style talking about this game. And I was really curious about the making of this game. And there's little to no content out there covering this game. You know, of course there are like retrospectives and analysis and reviews of the game, but in terms of really doing like deep dives behind the making of it, I couldn't seem to find like what I wanted to see. So I just said, you know, F it. I'm going <laughs> to make the documentary I want to see. So yeah. <laughs> that's what I did. I'm always very interested in learning about other fans' experiences and how they differ from mine or are actually very similar sometimes. Lewis Cox of the Dreamcast Junkyard had contributed to the show a few times in the past, but I only invited him on as a guest last year. Sorry, Lewis. While we have a few things in common in terms of our gaming history, Lewis had, hands down, the coolest granddad who got him into gaming. We also talked about the Dreamcast and the Saturn and his work in translating games, but I'll leave that for you to discover by listening to the full episode. I suppose it's what a quite a rare thing, but my my granddad was um, always into games. Like, um, you know, I'll get the sad bit out of the way. Sadly, passed away um, at the end of last year. But like, you know, all my life, I, he played games. He played, you know, from what I what I recall was, you know, PlayStation. There might have been stuff earlier than that, but I can't really remember. It's a bit foggy. And then, you know, last things I remember him playing was like you know, Xbox uh, One, PS4, you know, uh, his favorite game was Elder Scrolls Oblivion. Like, he was cool. Oh, God, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, like, and, you know, he taught me everything about games and, like, a lot of the habits I have in games are still from, like, watching him play. Like, he's always, you know, if I was playing a game, he'd come in and, like, watch me and be like, no, just take a second, have a look around. You might have missed, like, a hidden item or, you know, just little kind of lessons like that. And, um you know, I think the one game that always sticks in my brain, um, other than like the kind of popular things that were on the, the first PlayStation, like Tomb Raider, was uh, Alundra, The Adventures of Alundra, as it was called in, in Europe. Like, he loved like puzzle games, and uh, I think he beat that game without any guides, which is amazing because that's like a really hard game. Um, but that was like the first game I remember. And um, yeah, he. Uh, he had a few different things like um, throughout the years, like the PS2 was like the main system. He had a Saturn at some point. Yeah, he was he was cool and like you know that was like my my f- sort of first memories of games. And um, I didn't really have like a home game console because I think my parents thought like if I had one, I wouldn't concentrate on school. And you know. I think they were correct. To be honest, I, I would have <laughs> probably like failed all my exams if I'd have had a, a game console, probably. But they did get me like uh, like the Game Boy Color and, mm-hmm. and the Game Boy Advance. Um, so like Pokemon, I was like right in the the fault like the the moment for Pokemon, and like you know I played all of those games to death. It's like if pe- people who know me know that like other than the dreamcast like pokemon's my other like big obsession <laughs> like <laughs> i love that game those games like i don't have a personal deep connection to them like mm-hmm. in the same way i love the dreamcast last season we had both jose delgado one of the conductors and shota nakama mastermind producer and guitarist of sonic symphony world tour both of the conversations were highlights for me but let's focus on shota and his incredible passion for the show We talked about many things, including how approachable he is and why, and how committed he is with putting a smile onto the face of every Sonic fan. Speaking of which, Shona, 
a show in Portugal would make this Sonic fan very happy. Thanks in advance. I just wanted to show how committed I am to the show. Okay. Um, I'm very, like, Sonic Symphony is the priority for me right now. And mm -hmm. uh, it just, that's the only way. Like, you commit and you do whatever you can to respect the community and do what's, you know, do what, what's right, what, what, do you what you think is right and what, um, what the fans want. And it's, it's a balance of everything. But I, I just wanted to show it. And it's, yeah, that's kind of, yeah. I thought that was just a, the best idea. And the, and the one, initially I didn't really do that, but when when we had some issues with London show, like so merchandise that yeah. we, we worked with the merchandise company and then like they didn't in, carry enough and people are not happy with the with the outcome of it. Mm -hmm. So immediately I, I wasn't literally in the backstage. I was at backstage and um, preparing for the, the act two. And I'm like seeing this, like, everybody complaining about this i'm like oh no and so like immediately i posted stuff and then like i started acting like i found solutions and fortunately people seem to uh, respect the, the solution and it was not the the satisfying solution for everybody but it was the best solution for the time being yeah and uh um i i was able to kind of you know uh, connect with the fans and then just make sure like they're happy and so um i absolutely don't mind doing that kind of stuff because i'm so committed to the show and i, I will do whatever it takes to you know make it right and and yeah like any anytime people ask me anything then i'll you know i'll i'll spend time i'll i'll think about it and i'll, I'll reply and i've been responding to most messages um, sometimes like I, the, the reply thread just goes on so long that I, I lose track, but, yeah. uh, anytime I receive like DM and stuff, I, I try to promptly reply and, um, yeah, like if people ask me some stuff, it seems important, um, then, you know, I, I, I act and, like the uh, the LA show, um, we had a we had this boy. Uh, he was he posted. It just randomly showed up on on my timeline. He said, um, "Yeah, he's he's going alone, um, and uh, he, you know, he he doesn't know like who the people there." And so I called him out from the stage and I said, "Like, hey, dude, um, we're all friends, man. Like, we're all friends. We're family. Like, and everybody said hi to him, and it was just like a very." like really great moment and uh, in chicago two days ago um i had this like very heartwarming message uh from a mother of um this 15 year old daughter um she said like this is her birthday and i want to take her to this concert as her birthday gift and uh if you could if you could give a shout out to her from the stage that'll be like that will make my day and so i'm like I'm going to do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I did. And I like the whole house said happy birthday to her. And it was just like, you know, like it was awesome. Like it makes me yeah. happy. And uh, so like, I, I, I like doing stuff like that. And I just like to make everybody feel like this is like, you're part of this and you are um, Sonic symphonies really for everybody. And that's, I guess that's just, 
<laughs> I don't know. That's just <laughs> how, how I am. Many moons ago, I tried getting Steve Lysett of Sumo Digital to come on the show. It never came to be at the time, and while I really wanted to have him on and talk about what I like to call the Sega Superstars era, it was only last year that I actually tried to once again get in touch. I was delighted when he almost immediately replied back and agreed to an interview. And what a great guest he was. Among many other things, Steve told me how Sumo Digital got noticed by Microsoft and consequently Sega, and went on to win the pitch to work on OutRun 2 for Xbox. But he also shared what that meant to a huge Sega arcade fan such as himself. He also popped the hood open, so to speak, and revealed some of the challenges involved in doing this conversion, and how that opened the door to a fruitful relationship with Sega. Back then, I think, you know, Sumo started, we'd done a bit of work consultancy, we helped Broken Sword out, we helped at uh, Codemasters on England International Soccer, we did the online multiplayer for that on Xbox Live, which turned out to be really important, because Microsoft were approached by Sega, um, and they said, we want to convert OutRun 2, we're looking for people out there, you know, who you would recommend, and they said, well, what are you trying to do? And they went, we think we need to add online to it, you should talk to Sumo. Um, and I think at that point, we, we got OutRun 2. And very shortly after, we ended up working with Codemasters on Toka Race Driver 2 for PSP almost at the same time. And those two games basically rocketed and got us going. And we had to expand relatively quickly to bring people in to make those two games. So yeah, that, that was the start of the Sega relationship. And, and what a way to start it with OutRun 2. So here's the madness of it. So I've been following OutRun 2's development on various arcade websites because I knew it was coming out in the arcades. I had no idea that we were pitching to do it. Um, apparently, and I, I don't know how true this is, so take this with a pinch of salt. Um, Sega had approached not just us, but a few other places. And I know this because Gareth Wilson, who was the lead designer on uh, Sonic Racing Transformed, used to work for Bizarre Creations. And apparently Bizarre Creations also pitched for it interesting now what it swung it for us at least as far as we we think we're not certain about this is everybody else at the time it was all into the kind of need for speed stuff for car moddings that were bolting on spoilers and we're trying to make it all about modifications where what we did is we looked and went this is great so what we need to do is preserve it <laughs> make sure it is uh you know authentic to the arcade version but we also respect it's going to be 40 quid so we've got to make sure there's like good value for money so we added the online modes we added the uh you know the kind of adventure modes you go through collecting the cards we did all that to kind of bulk it out a bit so it wasn't just five minutes of playing you're done and dusted there's actually a lot of stuff to do and engage with um, and that apparently won us the pitch because AM2 took a look and went, these guys get it, they respect it, give them the gig. And so off we went. And they told us, they told us in the office, we've got run two, just completely out of the blue. And I went, what? Because <laughs> I just, I'd listen about an hour before going, look, that one two looks great. I'm looking forward to that one two. It's like, oh yeah, we're going to convert this. What? So it was quite a moment because again, at that time there were 14 of us, I think, in the office. I was in player number 14. And it was just completely out of the blue. And we were so excited. The very next thing we saw was them wheeling the arcade machine into the office. So like before we touched anything, before we got code, it's like, right, let's do some research. We'll spend, I'm getting paid to sit and play OutRun 2. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's what we did. We all tried to beat each other's times on uh, on time trials. So just great fun. The timeframes, I think we had to get it done, dusted and out in six months. Uh, again, because Sega were keen to get it out to market. Uh, and, you know, 
we got the source code. So when we got this, so we got all the assets, we got everything. The problem was the original arcade machine runs on the Chihiro board. It's 128 megabytes. Maybe it's twice the memory of an Xbox. So instantly we've got to halve everything to make it fit. Then internet, online infrastructure, it's not as it is today. <laughs> Nobody really made an online game. Xbox Live was new. We'd done it for England International Football, so we had to hack it in. There was network play on the arcade game, but we've got to get that working as well. Then it's got to load off a very slow hard drive rather than from RAM because the, the arcade version, it was all in RAM. It was loaded up and permanently on there, so super instant access. So daft things, like you drive through the junction and the level has to load while you're driving through that the bunk of the junction thing. Um, and sometimes, of course, you get to the end, it hasn't loaded. In fact, that was quite frequent in the early days. So you just run into a brick wall, the time is going down, and then eventually the level will pop up and then you can continue. <laughs> so we had to do a lot of stuff to kind of sort that out. The source code was in Japanese. Now, these days, you would probably just run it through Google Translate, but Google Translate didn't exist. So we had to find, we found an online web translation service and then got kicked off it because we monitored all the source code comments, pushed them through and then pulled them back out. And we, we went over their limit. Um, so there were lots of challenges doing it and in kind of six months, but do it, we did, you know, we, we pulled it off. Uh, and I like to think we did a pretty good job of it. So. I think that then put us on the map because people saw that, saw what we could do, and that opened up not just more work with Sega, but with other publishers. And we started to get people coming to us, interested in working with us because of the quality we'd done on, on Outrun. Uh, and again, it sort of ballooned from there. So. So that's about it for this first show of season eight. I hope you enjoyed reminiscing, looking back at some of the highlights from the previous season of the show. The Sega Lounge is officially back. Our doors are officially opened once again to receive some amazing guests throughout the next few weeks. So please do come join me for this amazing ride that will be season eight, our 10th anniversary season. What can I tell you about upcoming shows? Well, a few of them are already confirmed, so I can actually tell you a little bit about them. As per usual, we'll be taking a look back at the whole year of Sega. So we'll, taking, uh, we'll be taking a look back at the best of Sega in 2023 in a slightly different way this time, but with the help of some of my usual collaborators. We'll be talking to people from Sega Hardlight part of the team of people who worked on Sonic Dream Team. We'll also be highlighting a few fan projects that uh, are really interesting, and I'm really excited to share more about that with you in the coming weeks. So we have a lot of great content coming. I hope you stick around, as I said before. If you're new around here, please do check out the previous episodes. Do follow us on your podcast service of choice. Listen to us on terraplayer.com, or you can also use thesegalounge.com to access our catalog of over 200 episodes you can listen to. I'm really happy to be back. I hope you enjoyed this first episode. Please do come back next week for our first live episode of the season. Remember to support Game Blast 24 if you're listening to this episode on the week that it released. There's still time to donate by going to thesegalounge.com slash gameblast. And I'll be seeing you all next time. Bye-bye. The Sega Lounge, hosted by me, KC, and part of Radio Sega's network of live shows and podcasts. Theme song and incidental music by OSC. 
Got any suggestions? Drop me an email to podcast at thesegalounge.com. Find us at The Sega Lounge on X, Twitter, and Instagram, at thesegalounge.com on Blue Sky, and be sure to check out our Twitch and YouTube channel for live video content. You can find previous episodes of the show by going to thesegalounge.com on the Terra Player app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Mixed on Productions podcast.